Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the short-term show. Today, we have Travis Zappia. He owns five different short-term rentals in three different markets. And I'm really excited to hear what his experience has been owning in several markets. Travis, how's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for coming. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you found yourself becoming a real estate investor and what you have in your portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my name's Travis. Uh, I'm 28 years old, currently live in Orlando. Um, I started investing in real estate about four years ago now, um, focused mainly on um, house hacking to begin with. And how I got how I got started in investing in real estate, I had a friend uh, reach out to me that I was working with. And he mentioned that I needed to or he recommended that I should read the the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, and um, I, I wasn't big into reading and told him thanks, but no thanks. I'll, I'll uh, politely pass. But he's like, no man, you really need to read this book, and and it'll it'll change your mindset and kind of change how you think about your future and and some of the things that you're you're currently doing and the path that you're on. Um, so I took his word, read the book, and uh, and almost immediately realized that. Um, everything that I had previously been taught on um, like getting a steady job and working for somebody else and uh, making sure that you continue to put money into your 401k was was okay, but it was the, the path that uh, many took that um, it leads to retiring at 65 and then and then living off of some sort of nest egg at the end. Um, and after reading that book, I realized that uh, at, at that time I was renting, up in Pennsylvania. Um, I had just gotten a promotion to move down to Orlando and, and moving down to Orlando, I knew I wanted to um, I wanted to purchase a home versus continuing to rent like I was previously. And um, I bought a home uh, and within three months, I, I learned about house hacking. I had no intent originally on house hacking and, and doing anything of that sort, but uh, ended up uh, having a friend move in with me for $500 a month and then uh, two weeks later, he had another friend that moved down for $500 a month. And all of a sudden, I, I realized the the power of um, house hacking and the power of uh, real estate investing and continue to, to grow and expand uh, my knowledge and looking into different strategies, which which eventually led me to um, the short term rental game. And, and that's uh, being being in Orlando close to Disney World. It was a great um, opportunity and a really, really good market to um, to do short-term rentals because it's very short-term rental friendly and um, it is a, a market that has a lot of tourism driven by Disney World and, and Universal. Cool. So tell me a little bit about owning in the Orlando market. Is it dependent on Disney? Is there other stuff going on? Are people coming for other things? Tell me a little bit about that. I would say the tourism market in Orlando and Kissimmee, Davenport area, which is where a lot of the Airbnbs are specifically and, and the resorts is heavily driven around Disney World, Universal, um, the theme parks. There's also a lot of people that will come to that area, the, the Kissimmee and, and Davenport area who 
um, want to stay for a week and they're they're going to the parks maybe one or two days because it's it's very expensive so they're typically not there um, every day while they're in town but it's also close enough to the beach where you can go uh, east coast or west coast um, and hit some some beaches within a, a, sh a short day drive so a lot of the tourism is driven around Disney, um, but also uh, the ability to easily get to um, some of the beaches that are, uh, if people want to come down to Florida and also go to the beach while they're they're staying near um, near all the theme parks. But it, it is heavily driven around uh, around Disney World, the theme parks, and and Universal Studios as well. Okay, and you have properties in two other markets that are more uh, what I would call like a true vacation rental market, because not that Orlando isn't that, but there is actually jobs, are jobs and is other, oh my God, there are jobs and in other industries there besides tourism. So can you tell us what other two markets for the listeners you own in and can you kind of compare and contrast owning like in the Smokies versus Orlando? Absolutely. So the two other markets that um, so I own in two cabins in the Smoky Mountains and then I manage for a friend's family in Panama City Beach. Um, and it is it is definitely a, a very different feel um, as far as who's coming and and uh, and especially with with things like COVID when when that happened last year, what happened to the industry as a whole. Um, and, and I would say PCB and Panama City Beach PCB and um, the Smoky Mountains are very much drive to destinations, while Orlando is is very much a, a, the majority of people are flying in uh, and going through the airports and, and traveling that way. So um, in the sense of, of just the, the destination as a whole and, and what it attracts from how people get there, um, there are markets that are very, very different. Um, and uh, and you, I mean, I could I could tell that last year just from COVID when it hit, all the parks shut down. And all of a sudden, um, having to pivot the business model for the Orlando properties to um, something that was that was more of 30 plus day rentals versus looking at uh, markets like the the Smoky Mountains and, and PCB, where people were still coming because you can go outdoors and, and there were still a lot of things to, to do outdoors and people had drive to the destination versus um, a lot of fear last year with COVID and and uh, and individuals not wanting to necessarily get on planes to to travel. I kind of wondered about that. So you're saying that uh, you you had to pivot to 30 plus day rentals. I think a lot of people don't have a pivot plan or they aren't necessarily equipped for a pivot. T can you tell us like how you came to deciding to do it that way or just waiting it out? What what steps led you to making that decision? Uh, it was it was actually interesting because. Uh, I I had to pivot in Orlando because there was uh, an executive order uh, put in place um, that was what essentially was stopping short-term rentals entirely, um, and it, it was it was strange about how the executive order read because it was very unclear. Um, but more or less, what what ended up happening was. Um, Hotels could still stay open for first responders and, and people that worked in the nursing uh, and, and medical industry so that they can travel in and, and help if, uh, help at the hospitals if, if help was needed. But for whatever reason, short-term rentals were, were no longer, you were no longer able to rent out your, your property as a true short-term rental, which for, for me, I would consider true short-term rental being anywhere between 
two, typically between two and seven night stays. Um, so I had to I had to pivot the business model because in the executive order it read uh, 30 plus day rentals were were allowed and were okay. Um, and the the county made it clear that like hey this is this is not allowed. Um, it, it actually put me in a couple unique situations as well. One in particular where um, I ended up getting in a lawsuit with with one of my HOAs because. I had somebody who's going to rent there for 60 nights, which I understood as being okay based off of the executive order, um, but ended up that uh, the the HOA didn't allow the guest into the resort and uh, followed with, with a major lawsuit and everything. But um, the, the main pivot and the main reason for the pivot was due to uh, the executive order that was put into place and and essentially from reading that executive order i was trying to figure out as any business owner should if your business all of a sudden gets shut down you got to figure out how do you pivot so that you can still um, continue to drive revenue uh, during very uncertain times absolutely that's super important and let's back up a little bit and talk about uh choosing your market so you chose Orlando because you live there and you knew it. Uh, as you expanded outside of Orlando, how did you choose that market and how will you choose your next market if you're planning on getting into other ones? Yeah, so uh, a lot of it is continuing to talk to other individuals who are in the in the, the management space of short-term rentals and, and truly understanding from them how things are going, what the market looks like, what, what tourism in that area looks like. Um, understanding what drives people to go to that area. So very similar to the point that you had earlier about um, the difference between Orlando and the Smoky Mountains at Panama City Beach, Dustin area. Um, there's there's a, a different type of uh, traveler who travels to those destinations, uh, mainly around like during COVID times, uh, the drive to destinations were, uh, were a big hit because people wanted to vacation, they wanted to still do things but um, they didn't feel comfortable getting on planes and, and, uh, and actually traveling and flying through, going through airports. So I think it's really understanding what the, what the market looks like. Historically, what, what has the market looked like? Is it something that is a brand new up and coming area where um, potentially it's, it's higher risk, where there's not a, a tried and true understanding of um, more or less like is this market gonna, are people gonna want to continue to come to this market and travel here? Or is it something that um, is like potentially going to be gone in, in three or four years based off of COVID, uh, it, like COVID being the main driver of that market being hot. So I think really understanding historical performance of an area and like how many tourists that it brings in on a yearly basis is extremely important. Um, and also uh, the numbers have to work. So um, for uh, every market right now seems really, really hot from a real estate standpoint, um, prices that probably a lot of people never thought they would see, but th the numbers ultimately have to work. And, and historically from uh, the, the analysis that I do and, and what numbers I'm looking for on my properties is for the, the cash on cash return to be over 20%. So most of my properties are around 25 to 35% cash on cash return. Um, and that's what I'm really looking to outside of the data around tourism and what brings people to town, really making sure that the numbers uh, at least hit that mark. 
Awesome. And I think that's really important to look at pre-COVID numbers because COVID did cause a boom in a lot of different short-term rental markets. And I tell my clients, you know, I send them the 2019 data and the 2018 data a lot of times. And they're like, well, I want 2020. I want to see what last year did. And I'm like, okay, I will send this to you, but just know that that's not a normal year. It could be the new normal. And that'd be great if it was because the 2020 numbers are really, really high, but it's really important to look further back than just last year because it was not a normal year. So that's really good advice. Absolutely. So you moved to Orlando, you kind of got a taste of real estate investing through house hacking. So what made you jump from house hacking and choose short-term rentals rather than a more traditional long-term rental or multifamily? Yeah, a lot of the the reasons why. Um, so, so I guess there was there was a couple of reasons. The first one was I knew I wanted to get into the the rental space where it wasn't a house hack and it was actually an investment property that um, was a fully rented unit, whether that was long term or short term. The more I continued to look into, okay, what would make sense? What markets would I feel comfortable going to? Um, if I were going to make the jump into into purchasing something that was dedicated to to be an investment property, um, what I what I started to notice as I continued to analyze um, different strategies and, and different markets was um, the number of short term rental properties that you would need to be able to be financially independent was significantly less than the number of long term rental units that you need to have um, typically uh, because from from at least my experience. Um, short-term rentals are are cash flowing three to five times more per month than long-term rentals. Um, and once I started to to understand what the what the numbers looked like and and really aligning that to my goals of being financially independent, what what I found and continued to do research on was okay. Well, if the numbers are cash flowing this much more, um, how much more work is it is it is it work that I can do myself or is it work that I need to hire out? Um, and I really started to look into how do you set your management, um, how do you set up the management side of things so that the overall time investment isn't significant enough where uh, you're more or less replacing your current job with, with another job. So um, I started to do a lot of research into what tools are out there, how are people managing multiple properties, uh, 10, 15, 20 units at a time. Um, what systems and processes do they have in place? And I, I started to kind of piece together uh, things that I like from what I was hearing from from different individuals. And from that, figured out that like, hey, short-term rentals is is the the area that I wanna I wanna be in and I wanna invest in. And another another reason why um, I think I, I made that decision was living in Orlando, uh, Kissimmee and Davenport uh, historically have been two of the top. 10 uh, cities from a short-term rental uh, standpoint that have a significant amount of short-term rental operators, properties, and tourism uh, due to Disney and Universal and, and um, the, the different er things that bring people to the area. So uh, it was nice that I was, I was going to be living close to somewhere, um, especially for the first true short-term rental property that is dedicated just to short-term rentals. Um, so I can go to the property, set up the property physically, um, interact with guests if, if I needed to. So a lot of the the worries that many have when they they go and look at investing in a in their first investment property, I was going to be close enough to the property, about 30 minutes away, where 
if something happened, I can go to the property myself and, and figure out what's going on. And I think that was that kind of eased my worry a little bit into um, jumping in, knowing that I can I can drive to the property if I needed to. That's definitely a, uh, a limiting belief of a lot of real estate investors that you actually didn't have to deal with on your first one, that they feel like they can't invest somewhere that they don't live, but you actually are one of the very few people who is able to live next door to a really good place, a really good market for short-term rentals. So um, you definitely got to kind of dip your toe in and figure it out locally before having to just jump straight into investing long distance like a lot of people do. Uh, when you did start investing long distance, what were some of the differences and challenges that you faced compared to investing in a short-term rental that was just 30 minutes away? I, I think once I invested in a property that was a distance away, it really helped me get my stuff together and uh, and really forced me to think about what do I need to make sure, how do I need to make sure the property is set up so that I can manage this from a distance. Um, so it really made me become self-reflective on um, why I like understanding when I was going to my property in, in Kissimmee, why was I going to that property? What was I doing at that property? And how do I try to set up properties that are out of state um, or more than 30 minute driving distance away that I, I don't want to go to um, or I'm not going to be able to go to consistently? How do I try to set up my teams on site there in place so that I don't have to worry about the things that I'm currently doing? So. Um, it, it actually really allowed me to take a step back, understand why am I going to the properties when I am going to the properties, and then work to set up systems in place so I don't have to make those trips. I, I can coordinate with my cleaners and my maintenance crews um, to make sure that they're able to complete certain tasks that I was normally doing to save money at more, my Orlando property uh, because I wasn't going to have the option of going there and, and being close to the property. So um, I think investing investing out of state, out of the out of a, a market that I can um, drive to on a day to day basis if I need to, uh, really allowed me to to take my management side of things to the next level and and uh, helped me uh, work to understand how to set up properties so that you can manage from a distance and then have the team uh, on site or like physically in the area uh, to be able to coordinate with when, when you need certain things done. Absolutely, that team on the ground locally is 100%. The, it, actually your cleaner is the most important person in your entire team. And a lot of short-term rental investors kind of make the mistake of micromanaging their cleaner to start out and not really realizing that if you just find a good cleaner and let them do their job, that you're going to be a lot more successful than micromanaging them. So finding that team locally, starting with the cleaner really is like the number one ingredient for your success as a short-term rental investor. Is a hundred percent true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I think a lot of people too, when it comes to managing remotely, they want to know, they want to have some way of knowing how their cleaner is performing. So do you just kind of let your guests tell you that, or do you have somebody that goes in maybe once a month and spot checks your cleaner? I'll have my maintenance guy come behind my cleaners every once in a while. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that that I've uh, speaking to the point of like, hey, you gotta you gotta get a really good cleaning crew and you gotta trust them. 
uh, I don't want my cleaners to necessarily feel like they have somebody coming behind and, and constantly checking. Like there are certain standards and things that I, I expect of my cleaners and for, for the money that I'm paying for them to turn the properties. Um, and I don't want them to feel like there's somebody that's constantly going to come behind and, and nitpick things. Um, I do I'll always try to get feedback from guests and make sure that uh, the place was clean. And if they have any additional feedback or things that could improve that, that I get that feedback and then relay it to my cleaning teams. Um, but at the same time, um, there, it, no, matter, no matter how many properties you have or how few properties you have, you're always going to have guests that are going to complain about certain things. Um, you got to understand that like, hey, your, your cleaners are going to make mistakes, no, no matter how good your cleaners are they're going to miss things here and there. And uh, you can't take it personally if the guest reaches out and says, hey, this isn't clean or or like there's a small stain on a towel or sheets or whatever, like that's going to happen. Um, and there's no reason to beat up your cleaners about that, uh, especially if you have a really, really good cleaning crew, like they're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. Um, you're not going to be able to please every single guest, but um, I, I will occasionally have my maintenance guy go behind my cleaners and, and just kind of make sure that everything looks good. But the majority of the feedback that I try to get is from guests who are staying there because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, they're the ones that are really um, using the entire property and, and seeing everything that uh, the cleaners are, are, uh, are dealing with and, and, uh, and doing day in and day out. Totally. I, I'm a big fan of just letting the letting the guests review every now and then we'll say like to a guest hey uh we got a new cleaner even if we didn't uh and say hey we got a new cleaner would you mind letting us know you know how they did and they the guests are happy to do that a lot of times so i agree in not making the cleaners feel micromanaged or feel like you're sending people to check their work if you let them do their job and make them want to do a good job for you and like working with you you're gonna get a much better result than micromanaging them to death and making them dread every time they have a text or a phone call from you so let's talk a little bit about financing how are you financing these things yeah, so um, I have purchased all of my properties. Uh, so the Orlando properties, I have used 20% down conventional loans, just the the normal uh, the normal route that that most individuals go down if they're investing in um, in properties. Um, for the Smoky Mountains, uh, and, and I guess let me maybe take a step back. The Orlando properties, uh, because I still live close enough to the property, I can't classify one of them as a as a vacation rental or like a vacation home for me. So um, that required the 20% down uh, normal conventional route uh, with without paying PMI and, and all those things. Um, for the Smoky Mountain properties, uh, one of them I did a 10% down vacation home loan because it is far enough away from my personal residence that it can be considered a, a vacation home. Um, only downside of that is you have to pay PMI, but it's it's uh, I'm more than happy to pay PMI to to not have to come to the the closing table with another fifty thousand dollars cash. So um, I, I think a lot of a lot of times people get stuck on not wanting to pay PMI, and and when I ask them why, uh, they're like PMI is bad. I'm like, well, how long will it take you to 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 um, to be able to save another fifty thousand dollars? And and somebody says, oh, it's going to take me another five years. I'm like, well, how about pay $200 a month extra or, or whatever the PMI might be based off the how expensive the property is so that you can buy it now versus waiting another five years. So um, I, I don't have any issues paying PMI and putting less than 20% down uh, if there are vehicles to do it. And 
the vacation home one was was for one of the cabins that I closed on um, in the Smokies, and then the second one was a 15% down conventional loan um, that that I'm still paying PMI for. But my thought right now on on both of those properties has been um, based off how the how hot the market is there. If if the properties and the property values continue to appreciate um, as fast as they're appreciating. Um, my plan is to to go in and, and maybe after six months or a year, just go have it reassess, have the properties, the cabins reassessed and see where the, the loan to value at that point might be and see if the PMI can get removed. So, uh, and, and that's something that, that will cost a hundred to $300, depending on, on how expensive of a, of a appraisal you want to get. But in, in proper, in markets where, um, the, the property values are continuing to appreciate as much as they are. Um, I, I have no uh, no issues putting 10% down if I could do a 10% down vacation one or 15% down conventional and then trying to wait six months through it to a year to, to potentially get a reassessment and get that PMI removed. I think a lot of investors don't realize that Mo that some banks can do a 15% down investment loan. Uh, everybody, a lot of people are under the impression even that it has to be 25%, which it does have to be 25% if it's a multi-unit, but a lot of people don't realize that you can get under 20% on a conventional investment loan. So I think that's a really, really good tool and that not enough people know about or even ask about or utilize it. So you say that because the so when I posted that on my Instagram account the other day, and I had so many people reach out and say, "How did you? How did you get a 15% down conventional? It's like, what lender do you have? I don't. I don't have a lender. I'm like, lenders can give a 15% down conventional loan, but people, to your point, people just don't realize that that's out there, and, and you can do that. Yeah, they just assume that it has to be a minimum of 20. And Travis, we are coming to the last three questions of the show. So the first one is, what advice would you give 20-year-old Travis if you knew then what you know now? Which is not that long ago because you're, what, 28? <laughs> yeah, 28. Um, yeah, I would say I, I wish I would have um, house-hacked earlier. I wish I would have house-hacked straight out of college. Um, there, It's too often that people get stuck into this mindset of focusing on the wrong things, especially in uh, investments and saving money and uh, savings percentages and this kind of, those kind of things. And what, what I'm amazed at and what my 20 year old self didn't realize is um, I was focusing on saving on the wrong things on the small expenses that, that really don't push the needle that, that much into saving a lot of money and investing. Um, and if you are to simply house hack, uh, especially when you're young, if you're still okay with having roommates and do rent by the bedroom or buy a small multi and, and rent out entire units, um, you can significantly accelerate your, your path to financial independence. So um, knowing what I know now, I, I, like, I wish I would have started house hacking at, at 21 years old, straight out of college and, and after I started my, my full-time career. That is really great advice. So along those same lines, what advice would you give a new investor who is interested in getting into real estate investing in today's market? Yeah, I would say the, the first thing is focusing on uh, education. I think uh, educating yourself and understanding, uh, reading books, listening to podcasts, um, continuing to network with people that are actually doing it, I think is, is really, really important. But to take it one step further, I, I feel like too often, 
often, especially people that are new to this and, and want to get into it, um, too often people are uh, just focused on education and don't focus on taking action. And um, there, there's way too many people that are out there that say, hey, I read 100 books this year. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. But what did you do? Because reading 100 books is great. And maybe you learned some stuff, but like, how did you apply what you read and actually take action to, to get wherever your goals are and, and wherever you want to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And I think too often people who are new to, to investing in real estate and that kind of thing, uh, they focus too much on just educating. Uh, at some point, you gotta you gotta take the the leap of faith. And and at the end of the day, what what most newbies, uh, one of the big mistakes that they make is they they think that the first deal has to be a home run. The point of the first deal is you get started and you start learning. You, you don't have to have a home run. You can even lose some money and and take a lot of those learnings into the second deal, third deal, fourth deal. But just educating yourself for years and listening and and never never taking action, you're never going to uh, learn what you need to learn to actually get to where you want to go. So um, I think educating yourself is important. You don't want to make dumb decisions because you didn't take the time to understand what's going on in the market, what's your strategy, who are other people in the in the area or in that space that are doing the same thing. Um, but you have to take action because that's the only way that you're really going to learn um, learn what to do. And just don't focus on the first deal being a home run. That's That's not the point. The first deal is meant to get you into the game and, and get you to start learning about uh, what you need to know for the second deal, what you need to know for the third deal and, and continuing down that path. Really, really great advice. And along the lines of education, what is your favorite book or a book that you just read recently that's impacted your mindset? Yeah, I, I have two books that I, I really, really like that I go back to often. Um, the first one is The One Thing by Gary Keller. Um, I think that's it's too often the 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 thing that I like about that book in particular is it's very simplistic as far as um, uh, just a mindset shift, what to think about, how to focus and and really take action and get things done. Um, and he breaks it down in, in a very, very easy way for people to digest. and and honestly, it's something that you can read in in a day and and be able to to take in um, a lot of really, really good information. Um, so that's that's a really good mindset book. Um, the other one that I really, really like is um, Set for Life by Scott Trench. Uh, and the main reason I like that book is because he talks about focusing on the right things. So something I was talking about earlier where a lot of times people are focusing on the wrong things, uh, generally speaking. They're, they're focusing on saving on that $5, $5 cup of coffee that they buy every single morning. I'm like, that's great. Like if you don't, if, if like you want to cut that expense, that that's fine. But that's $150 a month that, that you're saving. But like if you eliminated your housing expense, that's $1,000, $1,500 a month by just doing something that actually makes a difference. And uh, a lot of times people are focusing on the wrong things whether they're, they're trying to eliminate things that, that bring them happiness. A lot, of, a lot of people really like a $5 cup of coffee in the morning from Starbucks or Dunkin' or whatever, and that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you focus on eliminating the big expenses like, uh, like housing, uh, transportation, and, and food, and, and entertainment, if you focus on eliminating the things that, uh, that are really, really big, then you're going to exponentially um, increase your, your uh, how fast it's going to take or how long it's going to take you to, um, to reach financial independence or, or whatever your goal is. 
Those are both. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And if any of our listeners found you inspirational, want to find you, uh, how can they reach out to you? way to, to reach out to me is on Instagram. So my Instagram account is at the young retiree by 33, the numbers three, three. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for coming on Travis and we will catch you next time. Thank you.